Thank you. Uh, thanks to everybody for coming here. And I suppose in many ways I'm an outsider, uh, it being an Irishman who has rarely looked at issues of UK industrial relations, much more focusing on the international scene, which is what I'll uh, talk about mainly today. I suppose in many ways when we think about Donovan, one of the things that people don't say as very explicitly is that Donovan is was at one level very much about the role of the state in UK industrial relations. And currently we hear a lot of uh, talk about move, reduction in the role of the state and globalisation neoliberalism, but actually the state under globalisation neoliberalism is much, much more an active party than often is given credit for. UK academics have been, I think, somewhat reluctant compared to other nationalities to engage with roles of the state, looking at very much the micro-organisational uh, interaction between unions, uh, employers, non-union representatives. But I think in many ways, as Chris Howell has outlined, that Donovan was pro possibly one of the key state interventions that we've seen in UK uh, industrial relations to be uh, eclipsed in, by the Thatcher government in 1979 and what that has meant. But when we talk about legal and voluntary approaches, say the Donovan approach very much strongly in favour of voluntarism, and with 2020 hindsight, we might think that to be an ill-founded uh, and misplaced faith. But in the context of high union membership, Fordist workplaces set up for collective bargaining, national economic systems, and a political party generally supportive of collective bargaining, it's understandable why uh, legal support for and legal approaches were skewed in favour of free collective bargaining. But I think if, you, if we fast forward 50 years to where we are today, very few unions will disagree with uh, the need for increased positive collective regulation of the labour market. Um, I was a member of the executive of my own union for six years and we were frequently involved in trying to lobby around achieving regulation, achieving strengthening in terms of part-time workers, fixed-term worker regulations and the like. And therefore, uh, we need to look at, when we're talking about the current policy agenda, where will state intervention come now? And I think it's important to view the trade union bill as about a negative form of collective regulation in terms of constraining the ability to take collective action. And then the question arises, is there an avenue where we can get much more what John Crudus was talking about, the idea of institution building through state type mechanisms. And I generally agree with what John Crudus says. I think if the current Labour Party uh, leadership wins, where will institution building come from in terms of labour market? It's difficult to see it. But on the other hand, now, uh, if we look at where most progressive labour legislation has come since 1979, with the exception of 
uh, the trade union recognition bill and national minimum wage legislation, they m often find their genesis in European law. And I think that we often talk about the Viking and Laval cases, which were very detrimental to collective rights. But on the other hand, it's important not to look, uh, forget about the important role that uh, European legislation has played in terms of building uh, institutions and labour rights across Europe. Rights for part-time workers, parental leave, equal pay, fixed-term workers, works council multinationals, and the information and consultation directive, all regulations all find their genesis from the European level. And of course, in terms of the public policy agenda, I think that we all know the next two years, one of the most vibrant areas of public policy debate is going to be over the EU referendum campaign, renegotiation and the like. While many of the directives, it could be argued, were watered down in their translation into the European Union, from uh, into the UK law, they've been watered down by governments from both Labour and Conservative. Take the work that John Purcell and Mark Hall have done on the Information Consultation Directive, the work that myself and other colleagues have done as, uh, as well on that directive. If you look at the white paper that was published initially by the Commission in 1998, the white paper initially uh, proposed giving guaranteed joint collective consultation rights and also the very first draft uh, spoke about the ability that if there was insufficient consultation, joint collective consultation carried out, decisions could be quashed. Uh, this came after the Renault shut the Vilvoord plant in, uh, in Belgium. The idea that it could be quashed was seen as central. But the UK Labour government at the time combined with the Irish government very actively to water down the effects of the direct um, but if we look at what then it, how it became translated into the UK with people speaking about joint consultation today and I think that was the opportunity where real meaningful joint consultation rights could have been enshrined in legislation within the UK. It has led to a paradoxical situation for particularly trade unions, that those unions who don't need the regulation, don't want it because it can be used to, what, to bring in non-union employee representatives and uh, somewhat dilute the trade union uh, in influence on joint consultative committees. And on the other hand, workers who do need it face a huge difficulty in reaching the 10% threshold of signatures in order to trigger the legislation. So it becomes one of these pieces of legislation that for those that need it, it's useless, and those who could avail of it, uh, it is also uh, provides very little effect. And when we talk about public policy interventions, I think people be well advised looking at the paper that John and Mark have recently published on the Warwick Iru uh, website about a future for information and consultation and how we legislate, which provides a fairly prescriptive policy approach 
in terms of information and consultation. But the bigger question then becomes, uh, if this is coming from Europe, uh, what does what are the key debates we're going to face over the next two years? I think that we're going to see lots of academic and public policy intervention in the next two years over the European uh, referendum. But very few of them will be coming from industrial relations academics. We will see many economists talking about whether or not it will have an effect on trade. We'll see political scientists talking about what it will mean in terms of various constitutional issues. But in terms of evidence-based agenda on work, that will be absent. It's also, I think, worth noting that there's possibly, I'm saying possibly, not definitely, but there's possibly a change being undergone in Europe at the moment. Two weeks ago, uh, the, the Commission President, Jean-Claude Juncker, addressed the ETUC. And I think the message he gave there was in stark contrast to what would have come from the Barroso Commission before him. Juncker argued that uh, he said that the Commission would be bringing forward what he called a pillar of social rights in 2016. He talked about the scourge of precarity and said that he didn't want to see everywhere in Europe going on down the zero-hour contract route that the UK has gone. He spoke about the need to reinvigorate European social dialogue and the European social model by bringing in the social partners at the European Union and speaking to them about developing legislation through the Val Duchesse process. I think this must be welcomed and we must engage with this sort of agenda because the alternative is that the next two years the policy agenda is going to be dominated by economists arguing over effects on growth, by people arguing about from a very narrow business perspective. And I think as industrial relations academics, we should be arguing, well, I would be arguing anyway, that the agenda for renegotiation is nearly as bad as the agenda for exit. <coughs> The agenda for renegotiation is an agenda for liberalisation. Uh, David Cameron in 2007, before he became Prime Minister, said that if there was one thing he could repeal, it would be the, Europe, the UK's membership of uh, the European Social Chapter. Um, and I think that whatever happens, uh, there's a public policy debate to be had about talking about the positive uh, effect that the EU can have against a government like we have at the same time. I see the arguments of Cameron's renegotiation and Farage's exit as actually the two sides of the same coin. Who can deregulate and deinstitutionalize the labour market the most? Um, if we take the things that they give specific examples of, things like fixed-term workers, part-time worker directives, rights of information and consultation, these are all agendas that find their roots uh, that within the area, a sphere of industrial relations, academia. A second issue that's arisen, to, so I suppose, I think there's a ground for public for public policy intervention by our IR academics in that area. 
A second is that people, we hear a lot of talk about the Tory government talking about becoming the new party of workers and the like, with their national living wage, and even the claim that abolishing uh, tax credits is about trying to get employers to pay more to workers rather than having the state uh, giving some sort of subvention. This is alongside the trade union bill. And I think we are in a strong position to put forward the arguments that when the Tories claim to be doing good for workers, they're simultaneously about stripping away the rights of workers to determine their own agenda and put forward their own interests. It's not about a return to some sort of paternalism. But who? a question when we talk about voice, and John Crotter spoke about civil society earlier, and I see Ed Heary in the crowd with... Uh, the groups speaking of civil society, one of the questions that arises around civil society is what right do civil society organisations have to make representations for workers? When we look around the agenda in around the uh, national living wage, a lot of this has been driven by civil society organisations in London. Uh, a lot of this has been driven by people who aren't necessarily uh, that don't have a democratic mandate to represent. So we can think about these sort of issues as well and putting the arguments for the rights of people to engage in determining their own agenda. I think one we've been talking about a lack of evidence, and this might be slightly controversial, but I think IR academics have done themselves no favours in recent years either in terms of developing a public policy voice. Um, we often are asked to sign up to petitions, sign joint letters that state principles without stating facts. And we say that we want to see engagement in empirical analysis, but empirical analysis needs to be behind the statements we make. So I think there are a number of areas where we can positively engage with a, with a policy agenda, but it's not necessarily going to find ears uh, with, and be listened to by the current government, but it can be really important. And just to finalise, when we talk about things like the referendums, and coming from Ireland, referendums are a much more frequent occurrence than they are in the UK. Frequ well, not frequently, but on a good number of occasions, when the political elites have been behind referendums, they still have failed to... Uh, to be passed by the people. And I think they're independent academics, public uh, voices, public faces have got behind arguments, for example, in abolishing the upper house of the Irish Parliament that it ended up that referendum being rejected. So I think even if Cameron doesn't get the renegotiation, and I think Juncker's intervention was very much signalling, I'm not going to be giving the British what they want on this, we need to be making the arguments why staying in is good and staying in without the renegotiation Cameron wants is even better. Thank you.